0: So welcome to the next in our series of podcasts. And I hope you're enjoying the podcast that we've been sharing with you over recent weeks. Uh, My name is Liz Bentley, Chief Executive at the Royal Meteorological Society.
1: And I'm Chloe Moore, Head of Partnerships.
0: And we were fortunate to meet up with Adam Scaife uh, recently to talk through one of the briefing papers that he was co-authored on uh, on El Nino. So let's listen to that. So I'm delighted we've got Adam Scaife here today to talk through one of the Royal Met Society Climate briefing papers that we produce Adam is head of long-range prediction at the Met office and also a professor at the University of Exeter and sits on the Royal Meteorological Society climate science comms group and the paper that you've been involved with is on El Niño so it's I'm delighted you're here really to talk us through the briefing paper and the, the background really to, to El Niño itself so welcome thanks Liz so well, let's start with I guess the, the fundamental question what is El Niño
2: So um, I guess the simplest answer to that would be that El Niño and the flip side, La Niña, it has kind of two sides to this thing, is the biggest uh, natural variation in the Earth's climate that we know about. Uh, It occurs every few years and it's centered in the Pacific and it's a purely natural thing. So nothing to do with climate change at this point in our discussion, Mm -hmm. it's just a natural fluctuation Uh, It is somewhat oscillating, so it it naturally flips from one side to the other, a cool side to a warm side, the La Niña-El Niño cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been going on for many, many years. We have um, uh, thousands of years of records in proxy measurements in things like corals from the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's been going on for as long as we can measure.
0: So we've known about this for, for, for many years, and I guess it's that historical context. We maybe didn't know it as El Niño at the time, but, but mm. people have, have looked into this um, natural oscillation over, over many years. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the history, I guess?
2: There are lots of fascinating historical uh, things to do with El Niño, La Niña, and the atmospheric part, uh, the so-called Southern Oscillation. Um, The reason it's called the Southern Oscillation, the atmospheric component of the the, uh, El Niño-La Niña cycle, um, is because the pressure at sea level tends to fluctuate or oscillate between uh, Darwin and Tahiti in the tropical Pacific. And actually, that's how the atmospheric component was first detected by Gilbert Walker, who is, in fact, one of the former presidents of the Royal Meteorological Society in the 1920s. And so, about a century ago, using the observations that they had at the time, uh, Gilbert Walker discovered that the pressure was oscillating between one year and the next, between those, those two locations. And in fact, that is the atmospheric component of what we now call ENSO. Mm -hmm. And the reason we call it ENSO is to encompass the fact that it really is a coupling between the El Niño and La Niña cycle in the ocean and the southern oscillation in the atmosphere. So that's a really important aspect um, of this whole thing, that it is actually a coupled phenomenon that involves both the ocean and the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And if we go back into sort of um, even longer time scales, then the people in South America, which is obviously heavily affected by ENSO, of course had experienced the impacts of ENSO without knowing all the interesting physics and the mechanisms that we now understand but they'd seen the impacts on things like their fishery uh, fisheries Mm catches and so they were well aware that something was going on and that one year could be quite different to another year in terms of the fisheries catches and they also knew that the phenomenon tends to peak in winter around christmas time Mm -hmm. And because there were lots of Spanish-speaking peoples in South America, they named it El Nino, which is Spanish for the boy, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously relates to the Christ child and the timing in December.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. So I guess one of the questions around, and you talk about the warming and cooling phase of El Nino and La Nina, mm-hmm. how much is that warming? How many degrees does it tend to fluctuate and oscillate between?
2: So, so the biggest El Ninos that we've seen in recent decades are about 3 degrees of warming, and that warming ramps up in, in just a few months. Mm-hmm. Now, three degrees n- might not sound like very much, right? You know, you get a hot day and it might be 10 degrees warmer than, than a day last week, yeah. but we're talking about averages over six months or many months, and these are ocean. Uh, temperatures which are much harder to shift Mm -hmm. and so three degrees really is an enormous perturbation Mm -hmm. and the amount of heat that gets released to the atmosphere during an El Nino is an absolutely astronomical number and is enough to actually change the temperature of the globe Mm -hmm. so the whole globe will warm in the months following an El Nino um, by as much as one or two-tenths of a degree.
0: So do we understand the mechanism that, that changes from this, this warmer phase, El Niño, through to the cooler phase, La Niña? Do we understand those mechanisms?
2: We have a pretty good understanding, I would say. Of course, it's not fully understood, and there are still a lot of research questions around uh, the El Niño and La Niña cycling that we see. But first of all, we have very good computer models that are able to reproduce those cycles And the cycles emerge spontaneously from the computer code. Mm -hmm. We put in the five or so equations that govern the fluid dynamics of the ocean and the atmosphere. And when you run the model forward, then without any prodding, without any input saying when the El Nino should occur or pushing it towards La Nina, then naturally the computer model tends to flip-flop between El Nino and La Nina cycles, Mm -hmm. and it does indeed produce fluctuations of one, two, and sometimes three degrees, just as we see in nature. So in that sense, we have a good understanding in the sense that we're able to model and reproduce it, in terms of our conceptual mental understanding of what's actually going on and understanding the physics behind it, then we also have a pretty good idea. Um, A key thing is something called the Björkner's feedback, which is basically an amplification of any perturbation that happens in the tropical Pacific. If you imagine an El Nino starts to grow in the tropical Pacific, so the ocean begins to warm by a few tenths of a degree, well what that will do is encourage air to rise in the warming region in the east pacific and that then needs to draw air in from the west pacific and so we so we start to oppose the trade winds and weaken the trade winds by adding a westerly east sorry west to east component to the wind so the so the overall trades are weakened and that can lead to a decrease in the upwelling of cold water from the deeper ocean in the east pacific Mm -hmm. and that leads to yet more warming so you can see there's a positive feedback there that can amplify any perturbation so the whole region down there in the tropical pacific is actually unstable Mm -hmm. and any perturbation will tend to grow and really it's that that helps to kick off the el nino la nina cycles that we see and we test various aspects of this in our computer models, and there are many, many studies in the literature showing that this is at the core of what's going on.
0: And the predictions that the models have are, are looking months ahead, so they're looking seasons, I guess. Mm-hmm. So typically people will be used to day-to-day forecasts. These are looking much more seasonal. Uh, you know, That's absolutely timescapes. right,
2: yeah. So, so the fact that the ocean and the atmosphere are coupled, and the ocean varies very slowly... Uh, then this actually gives us great potential for extending predictions well beyond the usual um, timescale for weather forecasts of a week or or so. And it turns out, and this has been known for several decades now, actually, the first predictions were maybe 30 years ago, um, the first successful predictions. Um, We can now predict El Niño at least a few months in advance, and there is even some evidence... That the very large events can be predicted more than a year in advance. And it's really the predictability is coming from these very slow processes, the Bjorkness feedback that we mentioned, the fact that things take time to grow in the tropical Pacific, and that the whole system evolves more slowly, for example, than the mid-latitude cyclones and anticyclones that we're used to in, in the mid-latitudes. Um, those, of course, are predictable for much shorter periods of time, but these tropical things take much longer to grow and evolve. And to the st- to the extent that those tropical features influence the mid-latitudes, then they can actually impart some uh, long-range predictability to the mid-latitudes, and that's a very exciting area of research.
0: So take us through some of the effects then of, of say, a typical or a strong El Nino event. What, what impacts does that have locally on the tropical region, but globally as well?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, we have about 100 years of records now where we have uh, rainfall records and ocean records showing when the El Ninos occurred and when the flip side, the cool La Ninas, occurred. And um, something that we can quickly do is just take all the years when we had an El Nino and look in the actual observations to see what happened. And if we average all those up, we get the consensus picture. So I'll I'll run through some of those impacts. The first thing I want to say, though, is just to mention that because these things happen on average when you have an El Nino, it doesn't mean they're going to happen every time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the atmosphere is to some degree chaotic, and so different things are going on. El Niño isn't the whole story, of course, about any part of the world's climate. Nevertheless, when we look at El Niño events and, say, compare them to what happened during La Niño events, we see some very marked changes in regional climate. The most obvious one is that as the El Niño kicks off, then the tropical uh, East Pacific is much warmer. That promotes convection and rainfall there. So the whole tropical rainfall Uh, distribution is shifted eastwards along the uh, equatorial Pacific, and that means you tend to have an increased frequency of droughts in the West Pacific, in the maritime continent, and places like northeast Australia can be very dry during El Nino, whereas if you move across to the other side of the Pacific, on the equator, and the west coast of South America, then you have regions that tend to get flooding during El Nino. Those are the immediate effects in the Pacific, but that disturbance to the atmosphere... Just like when you drop a pebble in a pond and waves spread out over the pond, that disturbance to the deep convection in the atmosphere can spread out all over the globe. Mm-hmm. We've already mentioned that an El Nino chucks a lot of heat into the atmosphere and warms the whole globe, but there are regional effects from these perturbations that spread out all over the globe. And so, for example, we know that when there's an El Nino uh, in the summer of the, of the growth of the El Nino, then you often get a suppression of the Indian monsoon. Mm-hmm. Um, So there can be uh, an increased risk of drought over India in the summer. Similarly, um, in the Amazon, uh, there is uh, also an increased risk of drought. And that's really because the air is rising in the East Pacific. What goes up must come down and it tends to descend over the Amazon, reducing rainfall there. Other regions that experience low rainfall, uh, South Africa, where again, there's a pretty clear connection to El Nino in the historical data. And then in other places you get more rainfall, mm-hmm. so for example in southern parts of the USA uh, in the winter when the El Niño is peaking uh, you often have more precipitation, sometimes more snow in that part of the world. So all over the globe we can pick out these hot spots where El Niño, La Niña cycling can lead to a temporary change and a temporary uh, change in the risk of different extreme events. And there are even event, uh, impacts in the Atlantic sector. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think sure. there, there are some links to, you know, the weather in Northwest Europe uh, mm-hmm. connected with La Nina or El Nino.
2: Mm. So these are, um, were quite controversial, actually. Mm. I would say until about ten years ago, and I think we have now got to the point where the scientists are in broad agreement about what those impacts are. Um, one of the difficulties was that people in the meteorological community, and the scientific community, they tend to think of winter as December, January, February. Mm-hmm. And so we average those three months together to say what the winter is like. But, of course, nature has no respect for human conventions like that. And it turns out that um, uh, the El Nino cycle has a slightly different impact in November, December than it does in January, February, and March. Mm-hmm. And so by looking in the late winter, we've managed to hone in on what the real impacts are. And basically, when we have El Nino's there is a weakening of the Atlantic jet stream. Uh, That means that there is less warm, moist air being advected over northern Europe, and an increased frequency of cold air outbreaks from Eurasia. And so we end up with, on average, a colder end to the winter during El Niño years. The flip side to that is the La Niña case, Mm -hmm. where the the jet stream is energised, it's very strong, there's lots of warm advection, and so we tend to have a mild, wet, stormy end to the winter. So that's the basic picture. And um, we've recently uncovered some even more subtleties and interesting things. So it turns out that when you have the strongest El Niños, actually the... Uh, the response changes slightly. So it's, it's slightly nonlinear, as we say, in mathematical terms. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the rare examples, I would say, where we're pretty confident that things really are nonlinear. And so the size of the El Nino matters. Not all events are similar. Um, and so there are some subtleties there that we're working on right now.
0: Mm, excellent. Very interesting. We talked at the beginning about El Nino and the, the, the oscillation being a natural cycle. But we, we were aware of climate change. Are you aware that the climate changing is having an impact on either the frequency of El Nino, La Nino events or the strength of these events? Is there anything coming out in the numerical models that we look at?
2: That, that's an excellent question and it's, um, it's a burning question mm-hmm. for many uh, meteorologists Given that El Niño is such an important year-to-year fluctuation in the climate, if it were to shift one way or the other Mm. um, in in any sense, then that would have an enormous impact on all of these regions that we've been talking about. So it is a burning high-level question. Um, The first-order answer to it, however, is rather dull Mm. because (laughs) we we see no major change uh, in the observational record yet. And neither do we see very clear changes in the El Niño, La Niña cycle uh, in future decades in our climate predictions. And these are the same computer models based on the same basic physics that are able, is able to predict the El Niño months ahead. So we think they've got the, some of the right mechanisms, or the majority of the right mechanisms at least. But they're not telling us to expect dramatic changes in the frequency or the intensity of the El Niño. However, there is one important caveat. Um, Although we think that the ocean cycling of El Niño, La Niña, may not change to first order, we do expect the impact on the atmosphere to become stronger. And there are good reasons for that. There's an intensification of the hydrological cycle, and we expect that for a given El Niño, then the atmospheric impacts in future will be larger. And so we might expect bigger uh, anomalies, bigger changes in regional rainfall uh, in, under climate change in the future. So the impacts of El Niño on regional climate could could become more intense.
0: Absolutely fascinating subjects. And, and I would encourage people to have a look at the briefing paper and you know to, to encourage people to find out more. It's a wonderful topic. It's something I've been fascinated in for, for years. And, and as you say, I think there are lots of unanswered questions, both in the, the structure and size and scale of both El Niño and La Niña and, and particularly, I guess, future predictions of, of where it may go. So can I thank you, Adam, for your time and, and sharing, I guess, this, this fantastic topic with us.
2: Thank you very much, Liz.
0: Oh, well, that was a really interesting podcast. And, and I'm very grateful for Adam for, for taking the time out to share um, the information really around El Nino and the impact it has globally on, on the climate around the world. So tell us a little bit about the briefing papers that we produce here at the Society.
1: That's right, so we've just done this one here on El Nino, but we have a series now, and we've done them on topics such as sea ice, how we measure the climate, And it's a one page briefing paper and really it's making the science accessible. So explaining some of those quite difficult questions out there and answering them in a way which is more easy to understand than maybe a more complex scientific paper. So if you are interested in El Nino and other topics, you're working in sort of a wider field of science and just want to improve your understanding, it's definitely worth checking those out on the RMETS website.
0: And Adam's at one of our conferences coming up in July. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So Adam is presenting as a keynote speaker at the Atmospheric Science Conference. And this is an event we're holding in partnership with NCAS. And it's on the 3rd and the 4th of July and we're holding it in York. And Adam's presenting on the first day of the conference and his talk is titled "Skillful Long Range Forecasts for Europe. And there'll be five other keynote speakers at the event, 40 other presentations and workshops and over 100 posters. And really, it's a two day event that's bringing together uh, scientists who work in meteorology, climate science, air quality and related fields. Um, So it's a great event to come and network. It's quite interdisciplinary. So it's a good opportunity to learn about maybe sectors that you're not necessarily a specialist in. And there's also a conference dinner. So a nice social event as well for the community.
0: Brilliant. And then straight off the back of that, we run our second conference again at the University of York.
1: Yes. So this is the Student and Early Careers Conference. And this year it's called the Evolution of Science, Past, Present and Future. And that's on the 5th and 6th of July. And it's a really friendly environment to present your work in, whether you're an undergraduate and just completed your thesis, your master's, PhD or maybe early career. So you went and joined a company as a young graduate and you've been working there now a few years And it's a great opportunity to meet other people who you might be working with throughout the rest of your career. It's not as formal as maybe some other scientific conferences that you might attend later in your career. Um, So, a great two day event to come to. Again, there we have a conference dinner. Um, And it's an opportunity to present your work or you can simply watch, pick up new skills, go to the networking events and that sort of thing. So, yeah, a great event to go to. I went to it in 2016 and wish I'd known about it sooner.
0: Brilliant. And and lots more information on the society about both those conferences and other events that we run as well. So I hope you're enjoying the podcast that we've been sharing with you. And if you've got any feedback on the podcast that we've made so far, please do send that into the society. And also, if you've got any suggestions of topics that you'd like us to, to um, record a podcast on, please do let us know. But for now, we'll, we'll say goodbye and look forward to, well, talking to you again soon on one of our podcasts.